0: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts
1: or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, Matt, You know, as you know, this is not my first rodeo. I've been around this block a couple of times. I thought I kind of knew everything that's kind of worth knowing, but I learned something new today, that you can grow a diamond in a lab. Did you know that? Oh yes. I had no idea. Oh man, this is amazing. Fortunately, we've got a great guest to talk to us about this growing business. Amish Shah, president of ALTR Created Diamonds, joins us on the phone. Amish, again, I learned something new today. Tell me how you grow a diamond in a lab.
3: A diamond is grown in a high-tech laboratory in an enclosed chamber, and it starts from a diamond. If you think of a thin slice of a diamond, as thin as a hair, um, that is placed in a chamber that is pressurized with temperatures in the range of about 1,500 degrees centigrade, about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and a combination of propriety gases that contain pure carbon are being exposed. Carbon bonds with the slice, which is a lattice of carbon on the diamond, growing the diamond into a larger crystal. In about 600 hours, you have a type 2A, which is among the 2% of the world's purest diamonds, born in this chamber.
2: So how expensive is it to do that then, compared to you know just mining a diamond?
3: I think from the perspective of technology versus mining, um, the first round of technology is very expensive, just like every other industry. But over a period of time, economy of volume and improved technology gives consumer almost a 50% better value, and that's where we have already achieved.
1: All right, so the technology is there. Are you selling any of these times? Do we have a market price? Talk to us about that, the commercialization. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we entered the marketplace in 2016. Our first retail uh, fit-out was at one of Berkshire Hathaway's store in Omaha. And in the last five years, the overall category has grown to almost $2 billion. Um, the simplest way to look at prices if an earth mine diamond was $5,000 for a one carat, for the same price, you would almost get a 50% larger diamond, a 1.5 carat.
2: And how difficult is it to tell the difference? I mean, can you know, the experts in I don't know where they are, Antwerp or 47th Street or whatever, can they, can they look at one of these diamonds and an earth mine diamond and, and tell the difference instantly?
3: Actually not, because a diamond is a diamond irrespective of how it's grown. You would need a meter to tell the difference between these two diamonds.
1: Alright, so I think about a big retail chain like Pandora. Are they selling your diamonds? Or are they selling diamonds that are lab-grown diamonds, I guess?
3: Uh, Pandora has just recently entered into the lab-grown diamond category. Um, lab-grown diamond category is expanding at a very high pace. Uh, the growth year over year is in triple digit. And because of the value it's offering the consumer, brands from accessory to find jewelry, are starting to enter the category.
2: But your products are, I'm thinking of your products on a higher price level than a Pandora, than the average ticket price at Pandora.
3: Yes, we currently operate in the larger, from a one-carat to a four-carat price point, so we would be almost a few times uh, of the Pandora price point.
1: Okay, so I go into a diamond store, I, I feel like... This isn't widely known or maybe it's just me I'm not I haven't been in the diamond
2: market Dude, for did you a not while. see blood diamonds? I did not. I Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, <laughs> I it was not. awesome. All and right. like so here's the deal Paul, <laughs> Help the kids me out. Help me out. The, the kids are unhappy, uh, justifiably so. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ethical and moral concerns yeah, I, I, with I, earth mine diamonds. That's why this is such a great solution. It is. Um and I just wonder how much of the market are you going to take with with lab grown diamonds as more and more people say, look, it's just as good or maybe better and bigger is always better. So um, I'd rather have this than a diamond that I'm not really sure about the origin of.
3: Yeah. If you think about it today, if you, and it's an environmentally and a socially conscious product, a product that's made above the ground in sophisticated labs. And the important part is it's actually a finer quality diamond. And then when you look from the price value, it's like you're getting something better for less. In terms of how much marketplace uh, this will cover over the next decade, from $2 billion, we're looking at about $15 billion in the next 10 years. What is also more interesting is the overall diamond in uh, diamonds that come to the market each year is about $22 billion. So you can see that the consumption is going to grow. Also, it opens a much more bigger market space. I think that's the bigger part. Aspirations are not going to be achievable because people can afford more diamonds. What
1: is the diamond industry? What's been the response from the miners? The
3: <laughs> I, I think like every industry, and I think you must have seen this more than me, the manhoods always take it with hard feelings. <laughs> Uh, Nobody likes their customers to change their taste or choice and nobody likes the midstream to change what is happening forever. It happened with cars. It happened with every consumer product, but at the end of the day, the consumer makes the decision.
2: What's the marketing like now? I mean, I can imagine if I said diamonds are a girl's best friend, I think my wife might slap me. It just seems like a sexist thing to say. On the other hand, she loves diamonds, (laughs) right? And I don't care about them. So what's the marketing play?
3: The marketing play is a larger and a more beautiful diamond for the same money. I'll put it this way. If you had to get your wife a one-carat diamond and you went to a store with her and She would have a one carrot on her finger or a pendant in her neck, and she would have a 1.50, 50% 50 larger, and you were paying the same amount of money. You would be happy, but think about how much more happier she's going to be.
2: Well, and she would be happy about the social aspect of it as well because I don't think she's comfortable with the – you know the possibility that um, the diamonds she wants could have caused so many people so much pain. It's such a fascinating story, Miss. Yeah. Thanks so much for something. joining us, and Miss Shaw there. President Altr created diamonds.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Forum.com
1: Let's talk taxation, global taxation and perhaps... The corporate minimum tax. Uh, To dive into that, we welcome Mimi Song, chief economist for Cross Border Solutions. Mimi, thanks so much for joining us here. Just give us a background here. Where are we? I know there's a lot of discussion here. Where are we with a corporate minimum tax on a global basis?
4: Well, we've we've already seen that the G7 has met to come to at least this consensus on a framework of what that global minimum taxation would look like, and. Based on that, we've even had uh, 130 countries come to the table and agree that this makes sense and everybody's willing to negotiate, which is a huge step towards trying to get to this global minimum taxation.
2: So, is it a minimum uh, tax rate? Or, I mean, in the U.S., for example, um, the corporate tax rate is what, 21%, and a lot of companies end up not paying any taxes at all. Is that still going to happen when it drops to 15?
4: So the the idea here and the reason for these proposals is ultimately such that corporations can no longer take advantage of those tax arbitrage situations and establish these elaborate schemes where they don't pay any taxes at all. So this idea of you know, profit being untaxable, and so the, this is what the the global community is coming together to try to mitigate. They, they want to they want to tax corporations. They want to make sure that corporations are paying their fair share taxes in the right locations. And under the proposal, there it it gets a little bit complicated. But essentially, there's two aspects of it. Number one, the aspect that companies need to, you know, companies operating in this digital economy, um, because of the antiquated tax rules, they're not being taxed uh, because in in the right countries, uh, because those countries don't have the taxing rights. So the idea of taxation historically was based on brick and mortar structures. And now that's no longer the case. They're redefining what that taxation right looks like. And then on top of that, they're going to be applying this concept of a minimum taxation where a company headquartered in a certain location there the global tax you know, the global effective tax rate should be at this minimum rate, right where everybody has to pay the proposal is somewhere around 15% at this point. but of course, all those details have yet to be finalized.
2: God, this is so complicated, man. It's—I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's already it complicated. Me back to my tax cl- classes, right? I love the. Uh, there was a letter circulating Donald Rumsfeld sent to the IRS where he said, "Like, I've looked at this. I've got a college degree. I've had accountants look at it, and even my wife looked it over, and we still have no idea if this is right." Um,
4: oh, the, it, 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 it. I was going to say the tax code yeah. is like hundreds and hundreds of pages long, and it just creates—it's even more complicated because it's layers on layers on top of, you know, tax code, right? It's just building upon something instead of building the house from scratch.
2: I mean, is this just the way um, politicians like like it? Is this, you know, how, uh, you know, salaried professionals making $176,000 a year end up being multi-multi-millionaires? Or is there any possibility of the tax code being simplified?
4: You know, that's... that's, that's that's a difficult question to answer. I think everyone would love simplification of the tax code, but I think it's nearly impossible to go back to that state, right? Because like I said, it's, it's, it's actually thousands of pages of tax code. I mean, that, that that just is so complicated that trying to start over from scratch is going to be nearly impossible. And so now it's just a matter of you know, I, trying to fix what what is is somewhat you know, broken.
2: You know, it'll be interesting, um, Mimi. Th- th- one of the reasons, right, is that we try and incentivize behavior with um, yeah. tax deductions. Well, we no longer be able to do that if there's a minimum rate.
4: Well, so this that's that's an interesting question because the minimum rate is one aspect of taxation, but that incentive, there are other tax incentives, tax credits that'll. That'll actually help to bolster and, and continue to um, sort of bring in investment and innovation, right? So R&D tax credits, which is another section of the tax code beyond this just this, this overall effective tax rate. And so the interplay between all of these different aspects of taxation, it, it, it's just really complicated. All and
2: unclear. Right, no, it is really I was just thinking, Paul, we should do a a podcast on taxation. Oh, which, that would be just a barn it would be burner. fun it would be fun for us and we'd have Mimi on, but I don't know if anybody would click <laughs> on a taxation podcast. In any case, Mimi, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you. Mimi Song, Chief Economist at Cross Border Solutions. Let's bring in now Steve Wyatt, he's chief investment strategist at BOK Financial. They have ninety-two billion dollars in assets under management and Steve maybe you can help shed us uh, help us shed some light on what's going on in treasuries right now we're looking at a yield of only 13062 and the real yield is below 1 full percent why are investors buying bonds after the fed's hawkish
5: turn and amidst taper talk yeah, so good morning, Matt, and thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I really appreciate you starting me off with such an easy question like that. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it truly is something, as somebody that started their career in 1982 under a Paul Volcker Fed as a, in the bond market, uh, you look at what's happening, and you, it's, a, it's, it's a, re- a bit of a head-scratcher. Uh, I think that, in the end, uh, we can talk about the distortion that quantitative easing is, uh, is, is uh, causing in today's, uh, you know, in the domestic market. Uh, the impact of what's happening from a global standpoint. Uh, But I think if you just have to look at the shape of the yield curve and what's happened since the Fed came out and gave some indication that there was some disagreement on the FOMC about when interest rates may need to rise and the response to that, this flattening of the yield curve, to me, is a pretty strong cautionary statement on the part of the bond market uh, that the Fed, as much as we want them to be able to get back to a, uh, a normal monetary policy, we want our economy to be able to operate without the level of extraordinary monetary accommodation that we have today. I think the bond market's sending a signal to the Fed that they better be very careful about how they do that and how important their communication process between now and then is going to be
1: Steve a big part of the inflation discussion is obviously wages and we got some uh, the jolts data this morning Uh, still a lot of job openings out there we had a pretty good jobs number uh, last week but Mm -hmm. still um, it's tough to make a call for inflation if there's still uh, you know a lot of folks that are not employed
5: yeah, and look, uh, I think it's going to be important. One of the uh, you know uh, one of the important topics that we're looking at, kind of the trends that we're looking at between now and the end of the year, as we think about our outlook for the economy, how the labor force unfolds from its current position is going to be a key metric. It, there, it's so important as we think about how we move from a stimulus-based uh, recovery to a more private sector driven expansion that can last for a longer period of time. Uh, What did we have? I heard John say that we're now up to 9.21 million job openings. We're still 7 million something jobs short of where we were in the economy before we went into the pandemic. So there's clearly this huge gap. It's not like there's a, I think for job seekers, it's not like there's a fear of missing out. There's a lot of jobs out there. I think the reasons why the labor market Has been slow to respond or complex, but we anticipate that is going to change over time. We think that there is going to, we're going to see steady improvement. I would not be surprised to see non farm payroll gains of over a million uh, in a couple of months uh, as we move between now and the end of the year. And the other reason that's so important is that's going to play such a big part in how the Fed approaches their monetary policy because they've keyed in on the labor market. Right or wrong, agree or disagree whether or not monetary policy is the right tool to help solve the labor market's problems. That's what the Fed has focused on, and that's what we think is going to drive uh, monetary policy from a longer-term perspective.
2: In terms of investments, Steve, um, Mm -hmm. Bloomberg's Danny Berger put a chart out this morning that I thought was interesting, showing that the U.S., Economic Surprise Index, you know, many banks have these, but Bloomberg has its own U.S. Eco Surprise Index, Mm -hmm. fell to the lowest level since June of 2020. Now, it's still positive, um, but (laughs) it's not it's just barely positive. And I wonder if that means, you know, most of the recovery, most of the growth ahead of us is already priced in.
5: Well, there's part of that. And I think the other part of that is whether or not we're at this peak growth. And it's like this second derivative problem. It's still positive, but not as positive as it was, correct? And so uh, we kind of think we're, we're right at that peak stimulus, the impact of monetary policy easing, the fiscal stimulus that occurred, which was material, and really, frankly, puts us in a different position than we've been in past periods. We, I think for all of us in this business, We have to be humble enough to say that as we look forward, there's a lot we just don't know. If we think about where we were 12 months ago and the conversations that we're having today versus then, uh, it's a lot better. The risks that I think we're facing today are more manageable than they would have been had we not taken some of those steps. But our thought as we look forward is what's next is somewhat less monetary accommodation, somewhat less fiscal accommodation, somewhat slower economic growth, still positive, but we're not going to do what's the Atlanta Fed GDP now index 10, 10, 11% for the second quarter. We're not going to see earnings growth at the same level that we've seen, but still going to be positive. And uh, and that's still going to be an environment where we can look for uh, the economy to expand and, and job growth to remain positive.
2: All right, Steve, great to get your thoughts. Really appreciate you dropping by with some insights. Steve Wyatt, I said, is chief investment strategist at BOK Financial. They've got $92 billion of assets under management. And, um, you know, I think, if anything, this is the time when you really need. Uh, expert advice. I mean, this is a very sensitive market. Is it priced to perfection? Are there still opportunities out there? Um, I don't know about you, but I need some guidance. And that's why we talk to experts like Steve. This is Bloomberg.
1: Naomi Nick, she's a corporate influence reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Washington D.C. Naomi, uh, your story here about Amazon's really interesting here. Just refresh our memory here. Kind of how did this play out? I guess it was a couple of years ago when this big contract was being
2: awarded—the Jedi contract. The Jedi contract. <laughs> yeah. So
0: they essentially, you know, um, awarded the Jedi contract, which is a, which was a contract that would have given. The winner $10 billion, up to $10 billion over a decade to be the Pentagon's sort of big cloud services provider. Uh, That project got a lot of pushback from industry, including Oracle, Microsoft, and IBM, who all thought the deal was tailor made for Amazon because it had already won uh, a similar deal from the CIA. Uh, Fast forward uh, a couple of years, and the Pentagon gives it to Microsoft. Amazon, Saying the reason Microsoft got it is because of President Donald Trump, uh, and um, and then you know now the Pentagon's saying okay we're going to just abandon the project altogether because Trump hated
2: uh, Bezos is the idea right?
0: Yeah, essentially that 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 Trump hated Bezos because you know he owned the Washington Post and Trump was making a lot of comments publicly at the time questioning the fairness of the project, which was unusual for a sitting president. Uh, to do in a in a procurement like this.
2: I have to say the story is amazing. I mean, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning, checked my Bloomberg and read this story and was like, oh my God, it's there's so much drama. <laughs> um so the Jedi contract, one of the things I found interesting, it was gonna be what, a 10 year deal, right? But they said three and a half years later, all that technology is basically obsolete Naomi. So now they're going to do what? Is it a five-year deal? Um, and I guess we're expecting it to just become obsolete near the end of the contract. Uh, why don't they just do yeah. these every year? You know, eventually, I guess there will be a tiny little clouds um, everywhere, and it will be on the blockchain. But what, what's the idea?
0: So The new contract, um, one of the biggest changes is the Pentagon is saying, we're going to give this contract to multiple companies which is what industry has been clamoring for all along. And, yeah, so the, the main industry is- Industry outside
2: of Microsoft.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Microsoft. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's going to be over the course of five years. We're, we're expecting it to be in the billions. Um, and they're right now they're saying, we know that Amazon and Microsoft are eligible for this. We're planning to talk to some of the other tech companies like IBM and Oracle and Google to see if they're also eligible for this. Um, And if they are, they can submit a proposal. But this is expected to be like a bridge contract. And the the Pentagon is saying, you know, we're transitioning to the cloud. In another five years, they'll have maybe an even more robust contract uh, to award to some of the players.
1: What has been the response from Microsoft?
0: Microsoft was, I mean, look, Microsoft was in a tough position. Amazon had actually filed a lawsuit, right, that was against uh, Microsoft's win of the contract. And so that, the, Microsoft was facing the prospect that Amazon was going to drag this thing out in court. Meanwhile, Microsoft at the time had to stop doing any work with the Pentagon. So in some ways, this this deal provide some resolution to Microsoft to actually get started on doing some of the work, but obviously it splits the baby and so they're getting less money. So they offered somewhat optimistic comments, public comments, which I expected.
2: Yeah, they're supportive as long as they keep getting paid. One of the, my takeaways was, how does the Pentagon not have its own cloud? Shouldn't, like, DARPA have invented the sweetest cloud for the Pentagon to have? And especially as we, we're seeing, like, Cozy Bear. If a hacker group called Cozy Bear can get into your databases, um, how are you going to guard I, think I have more against-
1: confidence in Amazon and Microsoft than I do the U.S. government.
2: Yeah, but if it's not it's not just Amazon. It's going to be Microsoft and Amazon and maybe Oracle and IBM Again, and a longer chain a is going to have a weak link. Like I just I just think it's such an amazing story. Naomi, thanks so much for joining us on yeah, this. Great um, it'll be one we continue to cover for sure, Naomi Mix. And Matt Day wrote the most recent story. Check it out on the Amazon ticker. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the
1: podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
4: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street,